Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change, and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day. I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today. I'm Olivia Wagner. I am in Detroit, Michigan with my husband and rambunctious one and a half year old. I am co-founder of Interim Execs, where we match companies with C-suite executives and also author of the book, Right Leader, Right Time. Great. Thank you so much for being here today. So I think we're just going to get straight into the book. The book describes four different types of leadership and how they can be applied depending on the business phase or the business need. So tell us a little bit more about the book, writing it, all the interviews, my goodness, that you have done over the years to be able to come up with this really important, it's more than a philosophy, I think, (laughs) and maybe you have a better word from it, of the four different types of leadership and how they apply. Yeah, it's been a journey to get here. My business partner and I spent over 10 years building this go-to team of executives around the globe. And we were approached by over 5,000 execs. And having that many conversations, you really start to see there is a clear difference between the rock star executives, the ones that are going in time after time with incredible results, and those that are just subpar, flailing around in their career, we started to see these patterns. And if you really started looking at how to match the right leader in the right organization, you could see that one leader was tailor-made for one assignment, another leader tailor-made for something completely different. And that led us to develop a framework that we used internally to make these matches we call FABS leadership. That stands for Fixer, Artist, Builder, Strategist. So we wrote the book, Right Leader, Right Time, to really dive into those four styles of leadership and encourage leaders to be selective about what they take on, thinking about what plays to their strengths. That's great. And maybe then you can describe a little bit more the four types, the fixer, the artist, the builder, and the strategist. And which are you? (laughs) Sure. So we'll dive into backgrounds first. I'll go in order here. The fixer. Think of the most troubled, chaotic, dysfunctional situation. Most leaders will be running away from that. But the fixer is saying, throw me that challenge. They're completely energized. 
by troubled situations and laser focused on how do we turn it around. Often, if you look at an organization, revenues declining, customers are leaving, team morale is down. The fixer is expert at really cutting through that mess to figure out what is the root cause. And then let's put things in place to get the organization back on track. They act with speed, quick to make decisions. Once that fix is complete, though, they need that next adrenaline boost. They're going to say, give me the next challenge. They're not going to thrive if things are just running smooth and steady. Second up is the artist. And this is the leader that is driven by the act of creation or reinvention. So whether it's a new product, a service, technology, campaign, they're dreaming that up or looking at what exists and how to completely rethink that in a new way. Any organization that is looking for how do we innovate, how do we stay ahead of the curve needs the artist leader embedded within them. And then next up is the builder. When you look at an organization and how the growth cycle goes, usually you get to some point in that journey where a company reaches a ceiling in growth. How do they get to the next level? They need more structure, systems, people process in place. The builder is completely wired to put that foundation, put that structure and empower the team to then build on what that foundation looks like. So they may not stick around at a company forever. Usually once it gets to a certain level size complexity, they're ready to hand that off to the next leader to take it on from there. And then finally is the strategist. And this is the leader that is excellent at operating at scale, complexity, They are putting structure in place and bringing the team around a short and long-term vision. Strategists are very focused on mentorship and how to really encourage growth of other leaders within an organization. They are really zeroed into the metrics as well, just to make sure that everyone understands where do they fit on the playing field And then how are all those pieces being directed to get to that final goal? And you look at large organizations and they can be disrupted just like any other one. So the strategist always has to be looking at how do we stay ahead of the curve? So continual movement is key. So I definitely resonate with the builder leader. I am more process structure driven And if you look at my business partner and I, we actually have very complementary strengths. He's the pinnacle artist leader, historical entrepreneur, and I can help put the structure in place to build the organization, which is what we've done through the years. That's fantastic. So you mentioned root causes there. I wanted to focus a little bit on Michelle Barnes, who was one of the leaders in the Fixer framework. And she said something that really stood out to me. And this might not have actually been in your written version of the book, but what was so awesome about the audio is you had these hour long additional interviews with some of the leaders. And it was in that additional interview in the audio version where you asked her, if you hadn't been a Fixer, what would you have been? And she said, oh, probably an epidemiologist. And I'm like, coming from public health, I have worked with epidemiologists all the time. And I was like, 
oh, that's really interesting. And then she suddenly goes, actually, maybe I am a business epidemiologist. They're looking for the patterns in the data and then saying, okay, what is causing this? So that we can then hand over to people like me who are the interventionists to say, okay, how do we change those things? So I was so fascinated that she had really focused on that because it's something I think is really important for leaders is to look at the root causes of problems. And one of the way we do that in public health is coming from this social ecological model. It's basically saying there's many different things at many levels of society from an individual, family, institution, community, government, and then social norms as a whole that influence you. And if you don't understand that whole process, then you don't know what is the cause. But I was really interested to hear about some of the ways that the fixer leaders that you worked with, how are they getting to the root causes of the problems in those companies? Because I think it's a really important leadership skill. <laughs> it is. And I love that you point out our conversation with Michelle. It was a ton of fun getting to do that bonus content for the audio version of the book. And we've known Michelle for many years. We actually initially deployed her into the Tourette Association of America, turned around the organization. She's currently serving as the executive director of the Colorado Department of Human Services. And she, like many fixers, has this ability to ask a lot of really good questions. And day one, you go into an organization that is troubled, that has been through a lot of trauma in some cases, and not coming in as if, hey, I have all the answers, but spending those initial days just listening, understanding where have you been, what are you seeing that's working, what isn't, and also showing that you are actually hearing what is being said back. One of the fixers that we interviewed talked a lot about walking the floor at a manufacturing plant. And some of the employees said, the lighting isn't good here. This is not good for safety. And that's one of the first things he did immediately. We fixed it. And it changed completely the feel of what was going on saying, hey, we have a leader here who's actually going to do something based on what we are noticing. So an ability to listen to people and show respect for, for where they've been and people need to feel trust. So especially in a dysfunctional organization, you often see things might've been run like a dictatorship. This is what you do. And how do you empower that team to think and act on their own? So I think good fixers, that's immediately what they're diving in, trying to do and build that trusting relationship. I love that. Yeah, I think empowerment is such an important ability to do that. And I love that actually the situation you gave, he literally shone the light on the problem. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> literally and figuratively. <laughs> And it reminds me of a TEDx talk that was about leadership. One of the techniques of the leader was when they admitted what they didn't know. That was like a different level of leadership. So I think that's exactly what your fixes are going in and saying, okay, what is it that I don't know? And admitting it. And I think that's such a shame. We haven't done that more during COVID because of course we don't have all the answers. And if we weren't so afraid to actually say that and say, we're working through it and here's how we're going to solve it, or here's how we're going to try to solve it, that would be more helpful. It's so true. And 
I can speak to what we see in the world of interim management, because a lot of the executives we work with have a little bit of this cross-industry expertise. So they might jump into a consumer products company and then jump into something radically different. But they always say that industry knowledge is there within the organization. And I don't have to know everything about that industry. I can come in and ask the right questions. But by doing so, you can also provide this unique perspective that maybe someone who is just entrenched in that one area may not have seen before. So the more we can all be open to those outside viewpoints and perspectives, the better outcomes we probably would have. Yep, totally agree. I think that's why coaches are so helpful personally, because they provide you perspective and permission to like work on the thing that you weren't sure about. So I could see that happening too. The other example that I loved, and this was Carol Burnick, and she was a strategist. And what you described in the book was how the answer to her business situation was to create this family first culture. So can you describe a little bit more what she did there? What did she do? And why was that the answer that she came up with? Yeah, I love this case study. And we had a nice in-depth conversation with Carol. If you look at Right Leader, Right Time, she shares a lot about her background and story. But in short, she grew up in this family business, Alberto Culver, and they had brands like VO5, Tresemme, a lot of Sally Beauty, Her dad bought the business in the 50s, and by the 90s, things looked radically different. They also were facing a lot of challenges. Profits were dropping. Turnover was much higher than what was average in the industry. So when Carol stepped in to take the role of president of the U.S. and later international, she was focused on how do we turn things around. And streamlining operations, cutting costs was a piece of that. But One of the things that you could see she was just so proud of was introducing this culture of change. And you mentioned the family first culture. She said, it didn't matter what portion of the day someone was giving me. If they needed to go to their kid's baseball game, go. That is so important. You need to be there for them. And you can still do your work wherever that fits in. But that was one of the things that she really encouraged of team members and also talking about walking in your shoes and really embracing that everyone came from different backgrounds, had different things that were important to them from family to cultural differences. So really encouraging the open dialogue. And one of the other things that she implemented was this culture of mentorship and development. She had a specific role within the organization where those individuals were mentoring, were pouring into the employees, and then also giving her insight into what was going on in this organization, which when you have thousands of employees was huge in understanding where, what were people feeling and what was important to them to build a really strong culture. Short story, the transformation worked, the company grew and they ultimately sold to Unilever some years later, but her story was really inspiring. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it sounds like leading with empathy. But I love also that kind of network structure you're describing about when you empower the mentors in the organization to be doing the mentoring and to being doing that touch point, but giving them that accountability that you want to hear back from them. That's the system that works. It's not just, oh, I want you to pour in mentorship in that direction. I also want to hear what that is, what you're focusing, what are the issues so that I can also then change them. So that kind of feedback loop is so important, but seems like it's not always there. How's your own motherhood and leadership journey going? I'm not sure if you feel like you're in a high stress industry, but I can imagine it is at times when your clients are stressed and strengthened and you're helping solve that problem. So how's that working? <laughs> This is a first time mom here, and it's been such a rewarding journey, also challenging at the same time. Every day has been a learning experience. We're a very small company, so all of us wear a lot of hats, even though we're surrounded with this big team of executives that we deploy. And I was very fortunate to have such an amazing team around me so that when Owen was born, I could take some time to spend with him and rejuvenate before jumping back into work, but it's now a new normal, right? My schedule is no longer just my own. And I have really made it my mission to try to be present with him before and after childcare when he's home. That doesn't mean perfection. I think I've had to catch myself checking emails, responding to clients that happens all day long. So you all of a sudden get the little head popping in. Hey, mom, I'm here doing my best to try to be present for him. And also, I think it's led to really good conversations with myself and my business partner about how do we structure this for our strengths and make sure that we have a team around us who can help us continue to scale, knowing that there's still some limitations there if I want to run off and take him to the doctor's appointment or whatever needs to happen. That is where we're focused right now is making sure that we have the right resources and team around us. But I also think it brings strengths too, because you start to talk about that walking in other people's shoes. You start to have an understanding of what other female leaders are going through. Because just yesterday I was reading the McKinsey 2022 women report and to see the difference in the amount that men at different levels of leadership are doing in the home compared to women. So the men maybe start out at entry level about 37% and the women are about 50 now the women stay at 50 up to 57 percent all the way through the leadership whereas the men by the time they're at the top of leadership their percent at home was about 13 and I was just like oh my goodness to see that graph it really hit me that's the thing the women leaders in my view and I think the data shows it are facing different challenges for sure. And I think going through COVID too, just brought those even more to light. All of a sudden, kids at home, more people working at home. How are you trying to balance that? Um, but it's been amazing being able to see that and experience that personally and thinking about how we're building the team around us and the women, the moms, the returning moms, the unique challenges that each of them have. So how often are you, are the executives when they're stepping in, are they dealing with burnout in the leadership that they're helping or in the employees that they're helping? 
Yeah, so we deploy executives into interim fractional roles, and usually that means there's some kind of change needed in an organization. Sometimes that could be great. The organization is growing so quickly and they need to figure out, okay, how do we manage this and get to the next level? But a lot of times it's the opposite situation, which is things are not going well and we need to figure out what is at the root cause of this. So yes, on the outside, you'll hear things like revenue is going down or we're just staying stagnant. Once an executive actually gets in there, starts asking the questions, usually you start seeing deeper issues, whether that's cultural, employees not feeling heard, respected, some of the things that we've already touched on. And burnout can be a piece of that, where the team is feeling like they are so stretched thin, where do they go from here? So that's where an exec can come in with a fresh perspective and figure out, let's restructure this to make sure that we're having an environment where a team can thrive and we can get the results that we need. Exactly. So then the change process itself can lead to burnout because it can be overwhelming too. So what are the, some of the tools that maybe you have? So if I think about supporting cultures of change, I think it's some of the things that you've, you've talked about in terms of trust, but really developing psychological safety so that there is a situation where, you know, employees feel comfortable sharing what the problem is, especially if that problem is burnout, because there's so much stigma still related to mental health. So do you have any insight into how leaders are developing psychological safety in their teams and then how they're thinking about the change process as being potentially a burnout inducing process? So what do they do to help companies like prevent that burnout as they're going through change? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think each leader has their own toolbox, I guess you could say. And you see some of this featured in the book, right? Leader a time. I'm thinking of Peter Murphy. He is an interim CEO and has worked with a lot of different types of companies, usually in turnaround situations. And one of the things he said was, I don't make any big decisions on a Friday. People are thinking about the weekend, the soccer game, their family. And he saves those for Monday, Tuesday, you're back. You can talk about it. You can react, pivot, jump in. And that's one little antidote of how one of the leaders we've worked with has approached these high stress situations, but also making sure that everyone understands where they fit in the big picture. Where are you going? And specifically, how are you contributing to that? A lot of times when a new leader might jump in, that isn't clear. There is confusion there. And that in itself can lead a lot of people to feel overwhelmed and burned out, feeling like there's no direction. Exactly. And I think that's what we have to recognize as well, that uncertainty that we've obviously all experienced through COVID is what leads to this, especially long-term uncertainty leads to this chronic stress that is what burnout is. So one of the things that I thought about there, as you mentioned, that is values alignment is so important. How important 
it is for there to be a clear mission for a business, that employees know their role in that business related to that mission, also that there's clear values so they know their values and how they match with their business. And I feel like that's where we're going so much more is that's what employees are looking for. They're looking for fulfillment in the work they do. They're looking for purpose in the jobs. And that's another part. If those things are missing, that can lead to burnout. And interesting, I was, I was listening to when women lead, and it was saying how often women are successfully leading businesses that have more social impact as well. And that's a sort of strength that we can leverage. But do you have any insight into that, especially when you've got somebody coming in, like how do they communicate and operationalize quickly values and mission? Because it could be like, especially if it's a new mission, how does that process happen? I think you make some good points here and just thinking about where we're at right now, the great resignation, a company that is toxic, for example, your team is going to leave unless you make a change. And we're seeing that over and over again. It is a positive in some ways in that I think more organizations need to look internally at where they're at and if they're actually providing that environment for the team employees to thrive. But We talked a lot about the need for open communication and questioning. I think a lot of that can happen also in smaller group settings. One of the leaders interviewed in the book talked about doing these brown bag lunches where he would have small groups come in and really talk about what are you seeing? Where are you frustrated? Someone was being too quiet. I think he'd ask, what's the juiciest rumor you've heard lately? Just something to really encourage discussion And then also be able to answer those questions one-on-one about where are we going and making sure that everyone is on the same page, aligned, to really get that forward momentum. And I really liked an exercise I heard about where if you ask the employees to say, I want to work for a company that, and then they finish that sentence. That really made sense to me because I do think it's very challenging. We have these mission statements and these words, and I'm always going, they're just words. They don't mean anything. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is it every day a leader or an employee is? How do they make decisions and, and know how to behave? So I love that tool of saying, I want to work for an organization that values X and actually people writing it out in their words because then if they say that allows me to go home to go to a baseball game then you start to get the operationalization at that employee level because there's such a disconnect it keeps coming out in so many different data points there's a disconnect between leaders and employees around wellness employees are saying that the wellness solutions aren't the solutions they want around flexible work that again the c-suite wants to go back into the office and most of the employees don't really trying to make these connections i think it's going to be a part of this new leadership challenge yeah definitely the leadership role has evolved and changed and is still changing and we've had to up our game yep yep (laughs) Also, when we think about systems change, because I can imagine sometimes when an interim exec comes in, it's just because of their personality. It's like, we needed that person. And I totally understand the importance of leaders and role models. It's really important. But I also see very much that importance of systems change. And again, not necessarily saying that those systems are some sort of 
tool or like robot that's doing something. I think sometimes people think that's what a system is. To me, a system is the decisions people make and the ones they enforce and the ones they reward. So when your interim execs are going in, you touched on it where if if someone spreads thin in an organization, then they have to change like the whole way of working. I suppose that's what it is. So do you have any examples of that where you really feel like, okay, yes, they created something more systemic change? Yeah, I'm thinking of one of the builder leaders that we featured. Steve Rack talks a lot about the process. You get the right process in place and the people can then thrive oftentimes when people are going against each other or there's some kind of dysfunction. It's because there's not a good process in place. So one of the things he talks about that he focuses a lot are handoffs. Think of a manufacturing company where there's the ordering, then it goes to finance, to sales, to marketing, to shipments, to warehouse. How are those communications, those handoffs happening? Is it very clear once it gets to the next area that people know what they need to do to run with it? And if not, you're going to have dysfunction And there there might be disagreements among the team or people feeling like they're sitting in their own siloed area. So when we think of the four different leadership styles, that's often where organizations need to look back and say, what are the challenges we're facing? What is the wiring of a leader that we need to come in to help us make this change? Whether it's supplementing the current team or bringing in someone completely new to a role where maybe someone needs to be moved to a different area where they can thrive in their leadership style. There's a lot of interesting conversations that come out of that. And I really enjoyed those examples. I think that was one of the ones where one of your artist leaders basically was saying, okay, no, I'm not going to run this business anymore. I'm going to stay on the innovation side of this business because I'm not the builder. Yeah, exactly. And that is a hard thing to do, to say, no, this is not for me anymore. We want to say we can do it all, but I don't think it's a sign of weakness in any way. It's actually a sign of strength to be able to be selective about what you're taking on. And that really comes back to a challenge I had when I was leading my research group. So I was like, every time, that's me, I'm all for it. But I know I'm not. I don't think I'm the builder. But I I think maybe I'm more the artist. So rather than the artist side, it's the researcher side where I was always trying to create. Actually, part of it was we always had to have innovation in the work we were doing to be able to get the research funded. And so that was really my strength was having the vision to know where I wanted to get to create the puzzle pieces to get the big picture. But then each puzzle piece had to be really exciting on its own. And I really struggled because that was my strength, but it was almost like the team wanted me to be everything. They wanted me to be the builder making the processes. They wanted me to be like the people manager. And again, even in that situation in academia, I was a a mentor and a teacher and we have all these different roles, but like being a people manager wasn't my strength, nor was I trained to do that in that way. So that was something I really struggled with because I tried to just 
work and play to my strengths and have other people in place. But somehow as the leader, everyone wanted you to do everything and be good at everything. So do you have any <laughs> ideas about that and advice? Because it's like setting a boundary, isn't it? A really clear, I understand that desire for people to want you to have that side to you. And I think anyone can force fit themselves into all those roles, but at some point it's going to be draining. You will hit burnout after a certain length of time where you're not serving in that role where you're just focused on what's energizing you. But that's where we're big fans of how do you build complementary teams? So, you know, you're the artist leader and how do you get a builder around you that is so wired towards getting the people, the process in place so that you can hand off some of those items. And there's always movement, right? Because an organization, people are constantly in movement, but uh, the more we can focus on building complementary teams, the more energizing an environment it becomes too. And actually, when I think about that, I feel like I had definitely great managers in place and project directors and things. But I think the hierarchy of the system was just forcing you to be at like pinnacle. Whereas the people that were the directors, to me, they had many more skills than I did. But somehow, if they're not the professor, then it was just such an unhelpful <laughs> It's interesting, the hierarchy that's in place, how that can cause a challenge in itself. Exactly, exactly. And I think that was another piece too in leadership. So the sort of reward system was always that you had to lead in the way I did as a leader of the projects, coming up with the new projects, new research, leading research, being the driver. And I had fantastic collaborator leaders around me that I couldn't have done my work without, but that they had to keep stepping in and being the innovative leader. And they didn't want to, but that was basically the system only recognized that type of leadership. You had to be what we called the principal investigator, to be a co-investigator you didn't have your own research agenda. And it was so frustrating to me because as I say, I couldn't do my work if I didn't have those fantastic collaborators. They maybe were like methods experts or analyst experts. They didn't have to be the, the idea generator. They were part of the solution. So again, I think that made it really challenging because I know those people burned out when they kept trying to be the idea generator leader. It's interesting, how do you shake that up in something that is set as this is how we structure this? I haven't worked as much in academic settings, but uh, that alone definitely can provide some challenges. Did you see a path to be able to shake that up at all? No, interestingly not. And lots of people say to me, why don't you go back into academia? And to be honest, that would be the place where I'd say it is the hardest to create change because there are such fixed systems in there. And yes, that's a place where really needs change is needed. But I feel like because of the business mandate to embrace change, I feel like there's much more potential in businesses to create change than in academic settings, which doesn't mean I've given up entirely, but <laughs> I think I need to <laughs> build up some more resilience again to, to hit those harder problems with more success stories along the way. <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting when we deploy leaders, a lot of times we're reading, is the organization even open to change? Because if there is a lot of resistance up front, of, this is just how it's been done and that's how it is, you're rarely going to see the same traction. And it ends up being a frustrating experience for both the leader coming in, the team, the owners who say, this is how it's been done. Why change it now? I think that's so important because if an organization doesn't have either a learning culture or a growth mindset or readiness for change, then yes, you are wasting your effort. I totally agree. And we see that in behavior change science too. Somebody has to be at that point where they're ready to change. But I think that's also really important when I was thinking about I'm trying to develop a leadership course. And one of the points that I want to make is you can learn all these skills about how to create cultures of change and processes of change and how to manage your burnout so you can manage change. But if you're working for an organization that is not open to change, then you need to be looking for organizations that are then more open. So I think that's one of the things is then giving people indicators of organizations that do have a growth mindset. So I've definitely been working on how do you recognize an organization that values balance, that that would have policies and programs in place to prevent burnout so that people can look for those. Do you have any frameworks yourself for an organization? What are the indicators of an organization that's open to change so people can find that themselves if they're looking to move companies? Yeah, even when thinking about the initial interview process, I recently listened to a podcast where a CEO was talking about meeting with investors, determining, is this something I want to jump into right now? And she said, are you making the decisions here? You expect me to come in to carry out your mandate, or do I have the autonomy to make the change that I see fit? So understanding, do you have that decision-making power in that role and where do they see the value coming from, from what you're there to do? So making sure there's alignment right off the bat there. Every organization we talk with, we say, the more you can share about your challenges, the more honest and upfront you can be about the current situation, the better, because at least everyone's going in on the same playing field. We understand where we're at. So being able to ask those pointed questions right up front before even accepting a role to figure out what is the biggest challenge right now? Why isn't this working? And how do you want to move forward? Are you ready to make that change? And I think that example of do I have the authority to make these decisions and the autonomy to make these decisions? I think that's what a lot of DEI leaders are finding. They're in the position now and they haven't got that autonomy or the investment to be able to do it. So that's why so many are, are struggling. So maybe just to end, do you have any thoughts about how we can help more women leaders rise? Again, we're still knowing that it's such a small percentage, but you have so many great examples of women leaders in your book. So yeah, are there any sort of patterns or lessons that you can pass on about what you think can help women leaders in particular? Yeah, there's a lot of these examples that we've touched on just about being a culture that's welcoming to family first and things like that. But For women leaders, 
to be confident in your strengths and abilities and to say no, to delegate where needed. That is important. And I think we've seen many leaders that goes for both men and women trying to be all things to all people, but power comes in defining your strengths. And for me personally, half the time, I feel like I'm juggling a million things in my head from here's the list for work and everything that needs to be done to what are we getting on the table tonight for dinner and doctor's appointments. So being able to take on those tasks and fully invest in yourself, but also focus on how do we serve in our highest and best use and build those complementary teams and be honest and open about where are we at and how do we need help too from the team around us? Thanks so much for listening today. I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day and help you lead real change with evidence-based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried and failed. Because I know you have what it takes and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading.com hyphen real hyphen change.com that's www.leadingrealchange.com take control your are